look, I, I just want to tell the listeners that we're not going to get to feedback this week. We had a okay. great conversation with Josh. Terrific. Uh, Josh Weishart from West Virginia. Yep. It's fantastic. Who's a VAP, and it was a great conversation about education, education financing, and theory, and all. The, if you're an oral argument geek, you'll you'll like it. And and, and you were you were very um you were very eager to have us do a show about this topic, and I'm glad because it turned out it turned out to be very very challenging. It's very interesting. Yeah. I personally find it a little bit depressing. Mm. Um, but not the show. No, not this episode. And yeah. quite the quite the opposite. In and in fact, fact, but there there is a piece of the show which I think will go in our all time highlight reels. <laughs> I mentioned that you were pretty amused by that. Yeah. I was very amused by that because, well, I mean, you know, look, you're a funny guy. Uh, I the other thing we're not going to talk about this week that we did get a request to talk about mm. is the passing of Justice Scalia. Yeah, and I I just don't think I'm ready to talk about it on the show. I think at some point we might have a show about. Justice Scalia's legacy, and that could be really good. Here's a, I'm not ready could, to do it now. It could though. be good. Here's what I would want for it, though. Is I think that I think the way that it could be good is if it focused on something a bit more particular. So, for example, the Yale uh, Journal on Regulation. Yeah, uh, I think they've got some stuff up on their website right now about sort of you know greatest Scalia quotations from administrative law cases. Sure. And I think there, if you, if you, I think it helps in a, with a career as long as his was to s- try to slice it a little bit differently than just saying Scalia's legacy. And I we, just we, think that's too we, big. I agree. Thing. I agree. That's we, too, that's but like we a, could do, we could do one or two, one extra long show or, or, or even two shows where we have briefer conversations with experts in the area about Scalia in that area. We yeah. could even solicit some listener feedback on. Right. You know, their experience of Scalia, whether it's in law school or in the area in right. which they practice or just what they picked up from the news media if they're not a lawyer. And, or we could do, you know, favorite majority opinions. And or, I'd like just to talk to you. I mean, I, I have, you know, my own kind of relationship with Scalia, which was entirely one sided. <laughs> he didn't even know I existed. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, was was it was complicated, right? It's yeah. fraud. And uh, he was a, you, all, a consistent challenge to my thinking. And yes. that I, I will. I, that I'll miss terribly, but I'm not ready to go into that more yep. at this point. Yep. Um, but I did want to acknowledge that we got that request and, and other people have asked about it. And, and I think it's a great idea. I just think I'm not ready yet to do it. Um, uh, and I know I'm not ready either, but, yeah. but like you, I think it would be, it's very, it's a very worthy thing to do if done well. Yeah. And we've gotten some other excellent feedback and we will get to that another time. But yeah. for now, let's go on with the show. Now, Josh, did you happen to see this piece? Was it on Vox, Christian, the the one that you sent me a link to? This was about a piece about uh, New York City schools. I think it was Vox. Yeah. Um, and it was about sort of the patterns of segregation that persist based on all sorts of factors from the author's perspective. This is a woman who was has been a teacher and is now running a, a, a sort of, it's not quite a charter school, is it? Is it a charter school? I can't remember now. But in any event, have you seen this article josh by chance? Not, sorry no i haven't it was just interesting for me to read because this is not something i follow um and in part because i don't have any children um and so perforce no school-age children <laughs> um and and uh and i so i don't follow this closely and it was just interesting to hear someone uh who has these experiences that she has reflect on what she sees in schools in uh in new york city in brooklyn in particular i think is the the borough that she lives in and mm-hmm. um and and you know it's just sort of again as a reader who doesn't follow things like this 
I sort of was feeling kind of hopeless as I was reading it. Like, wow, these problems are so complicated and so much about economic inequality and uh, that it felt dispiriting to me. Well, what I like about Josh's pieces, and we're going to talk about two, I I think, um, is is the way, you know, apropos of the show, really, they they really do get to the bottom of, they kind of go all the way back. Because with so many complicated issues, it's like you see people fighting over a game of Monopoly or some other game. And you ask what they're fighting about, and it's like some hyper-technical thing in the rules, but that's almost never what it's really about, right? right? Well, it's not where the energy is coming from. Yeah, there's some, like, ultimately there's some fundamental disagreement about how to play the game, probably. Now, sometimes it really is just hyper-technical, and you solve that problem, but that's not... That's not our schooling problem. No, it's not. <laughs> right? and, and so, um, you know, the, the first piece, uh, Josh, this was from a, a couple of years ago, uh, mapped out a lot of terrain in terms of like what are – when it comes to our educational problem, the problem of uneven funding, the problem that some kids get a raw deal out of schooling, some kids get almost no deal, some kids get a great deal, what, what are our basic commitments that would – kind of put us on a path toward, you know, opting for one kind of uh, funding regime or another kind of funding regime, you know, what kind of what's our commitment to equality and adequacy. So I do want to talk about all of that. I see the Uh second piece as a kind of sequel. And, you know, for someone interested in legal theory, like me, I love the Hofeld stuff. And we can talk Uh about that. But but I think more generally, the piece is about, you know, how given those commitments, how do you solve the problem in the within the framework of a legislature which has one institutional perspective uh a court which has another and the people which are plural right mm-hmm. and right. and it kind of maps out that terrain using hofeld as a device i think more than mm-hmm. as the the fundamental thing that you're getting at it, is that a rough right. sketch of what you've done that's that's a very good sketch and in fact i would what i would say is the first piece sort of sketches a political theory for for the convergence of these two principles that have been have been guiding school finance litigation, equality and adequacy. And the second piece sort of lays the legal theory for that. Right. So uh, that's how I see it. I would love to go through some of this stuff. For the, so I, I think a lot of people listening have views about unequal education and, uh-huh. um, and maybe even considered views. Uh, I, I know I thought I did. And, and reading this piece really helped me see things in a, in a new way, which is all, you know, that's, that's all you can hope for from a good piece of, of legal scholarship. And I, I guess it all goes back to, for many people, like a, a jumping off point from law school would be the San Antonio case. Right. Uh, do you want to just tell people like what the court decided in that case? And, and, so and sure. like, this yeah. is back in 73, right? So yeah. It's, well, it's now quite a, it's like a two generations ago. Right. Now this, this was a case that began actually because of uh, a walkout by 400 mostly Hispanic students who were protesting inadequate uh, supplies, lack of qualified teachers. Their parents formed a group. That group eventually found a lawyer. The lawyer eventually sued and they illustrated uh, significant disparities between the, their their school district was Edgewood and the nearby school district was Alamo Heights. Edgewood imposed the highest property tax in the area, but due to its low property values, it generated the lowest amount of revenue. Alamo Heights was a mostly affluent, uh, predominantly white school district, generated 12 times the revenue despite taxing itself at a lower rate. Um, the state, for its part, 
mostly contributed roughly the same amount to both Edgewood and Alamo Heights, which of course did not remedy that disparity. And many of us know the rest of that story, which is that the Supreme Court declined to recognize a fundamental right to education under the Equal Protection Clause, and then proceeded to apply just simply rational basis review uh, and gave strong deference to the notion that, you know, local control is, is an important value that should, that should be valued, even tolerating some and quality. It was a five to four decision. It drew a a vigorous dissent from uh, Justice Marshall. The one thing that I think is important about that is the last footnote of that opinion. And the last footnote of that opinion, Justice Marshall suggests in no uncertain terms that they should, that advocates should take their claims to state court Mm -hmm. uh, and proceed under state court, uh, state constitutions uh, with the same, the very same claims. And that's exactly what has happened uh, since Rodriguez. And the progress has been what mixed would you say, right? Yeah, that's right. So dozens of courts have utilized the right to education under state constitutions to find their school finance schemes to be unconstitutional. And so that has addressed some of the disparities, but it's never been, it's never ushered in lasting reform. And this is an important textual difference between the national constitution and many state constitutions, that many state constitutions actually explicitly talk about the right to education in some formulation or other. Are there important differences in the way this right is formulated in different state constitutions that helps explain some of the differences in the ways state Supreme Courts have approached the issue? Yes, by and large, most of the state constitutions, I would say 48 to 49 states, depending, you know, there's some disagreement, but most of the state constitutions have an education clause in their state constitutions that uh, explicitly guarantee some level of education. And most of these provisions are written in in very mandatory terms to suggest that there is an affirmative obligation. Uh, you don't see that, obviously, in, in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, so there is that important difference. Uh, that was one of the uh, the objectives of my my second paper is to highlight that 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 difference is there. Uh, and what are the implications of that of the right to education in state constitutions taking the form of a claim right? Although you know, as you as you point out, I mean, it, it was five to four. We were basically one justice away from having a right to education in the United States Constitution. And also, as you point out in the newer paper, the Lawrence and Obergefell line of cases, for some, holds out some promise that the court is kind of reconceptualizing, maybe through Justice Kennedy's libertarianism. I'm not sure exactly, but 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 maybe willing to reconsider whether there is kind of a, a personal right to defining one's future. You know, the kind of libertarian ideal of autonomy, which can manifest as a right to education, the right to become a full person on equal on some kind of equal basis with others. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no. I think that that's right. I I think that there is some hope. There is some cause to be hopeful at the federal level, uh, given the new uh, emphasis on the synergy between equality and liberty and what what does that hold um, in terms of uh, the right to education. You know, I I tended to focus on what the right to education is now. What are the the prevailing forms and functions of the right to education as it currently exists in the domain of state constitutional law? Yeah. So let's can we if we could back up just a minute, because I think when we talk about a right to education, of course, we can get into the kind of Hofeldian analysis in a bit. We're, what we're mm-hmm. looking for is some bit of law which provides a gateway for the court as an institution to come in and use its principles, you know, in some way to decide this issue about funding and proportionality, mm-hmm. especially in, a, in an area in which we don't think legislatures will have quite the same egalitarian principles. 
And I mean, that's what this is about. It's like, does this bit of law, whether it's due process or equal protection or something else or a direct right to education, does this provide a sufficient gateway for the court to do something rather dramatic, right, which is to direct the legislature to spend money in a particular way or not to spend it uh, in some in some other way? And I guess to to start thinking about that, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, just give us a sense in, in whether they're your arguments or not. Why should we ever tolerate one district's having a significantly disproportionate spending per pupil than another district through whatever mechanism they decide to use to accomplish that objective, even if it doesn't look like they are purposefully trying to be disproportionate, you know, but they've chosen property taxes or something else which has that effect, predictably has that effect. Why should we ever tolerate that? Does it, I mean, that does seem totally in a, in, you know, inegalitarian and you address this in the paper, I know, but I'm wondering, you know, how would you describe it in a nutshell? Well, I guess it is is still the great deal of deference that is owed to local control, right? That um, you know, I'm in a I'm in a, a district where uh, a suburban district where we can afford to spend more per pupil on uh, on our students, and why should we um, not be allowed to do that? Right? And why would you? On what basis would you be taking money from our school district? Uh, and spending it somewhere else, right? Uh, it's the money that we've generated from our, our local sources and uh, the money that we foresee that we need to uh, have effective lo- local schools. And I think that that's sort of the, I guess that would be the counter argument. I mean, I guess under under Bush versus Gore, we learned that, that counties can't even maintain separate balloting systems, right? Mm-hmm. And also, or, you know, standards you look, for count, counting You look at the ballot, Commerce Clause but, jurisprudence uh, and and how how the how in the 40s there's this recognition that if you're consuming wheat that you grew on your farm it has follow-on effects especially in the aggregate right so mm-hmm. so you can't you can't try to isolate artificially and say well you know in in this district we we have more to spend therefore we want to spend more yeah but it has effects in the aggregate across all the districts so maybe maybe you do have more but if we're thinking about the way that um, the way that it makes sense for schools to have enough funds to do the things they need to do, then isolating that neighborhood from other neighborhoods is sort of, it's a logic that we wouldn't find to be applicable in, in most ways of thinking about regulating the national economy. We would say, I can't just ignore an effect over there because it comes over here, right? right. So, so why do we accept that in education? Because of this local control pr- tradition. Right. That there's this notion that and, and, you know, this this goes back to federalism and and, and um, this idea that schools should be controlled locally. Yeah, I mean, it's just that's too redistributive, I mean, it's it's really redistributive to it's if you approach it in the other way, it's it looks too much like um, you're trying to tell me that funds that I think belong in my local neighborhood school should go to some far-flung school that I don't know anything about. We have a different preference around here for swimming pools versus schools versus parks versus people keeping money in their pockets. And we're entitled to make that – strike that balance. And unlike things like roads, right, Mm -hmm. spending in another county doesn't redound to our benefit. Mm-hmm. And so from if, if if your model of how this all works is that the wealthy control everything, like right. the, the Gillens and Page model for how democracy actually works these days, <laughs> then then it makes total sense that the wealthy will be that that the that states will pool resources for things which are, you know, necessarily redound to statewide benefit. 
things like yeah, roads, but, telecommunications, et cetera, right? Yeah, and, and Joe, I know you you aren't a parent. Maybe Christian, I don't know if you are Christian. I am, yeah. Uh, okay, so you know that, you know, when, when we're talking about our kids' future, how much we're willing to contribute and how selfish we get, right? Yeah, when it yeah. comes to uh, our kids' prospects for, for having a great future. I, I have to say this too, as, as an aside, um, both pieces are, are very careful and are, are beautifully written and I think just really nicely walk you through these analyses. But there's, a, there's, a, there's like a, a signal sent through there that you have kids. You know, I mean, I can still like, you know what I mean? I I don't know if you got that, Joe, but it was, um, but the way that you talk about the interests involved are, are at once like careful and legal, but they are also personal. And, um, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who saw it that way, but, uh, I, I found that interesting and, and it gave, it gave what might otherwise be coldly analytic, like lens application a sense of that that you had like skin in the game that there was some there's some like like we all really do right and yes. and, and that perspective kind of comes across and is, so speaking of those lenses do you want to just tell us like the difference between sufficiency and adequacy and equality and and um maybe luck egalitarianism and i'd like i'd like to get <laughs> sure. a few of these things out on the table cuz I, I i don't okay. think our many of our listeners have heard at least all of these and and i thought it was just really great all right, we're starting with the notion of equality of opportunity that entails or has been associated with the notion that we shouldn't discriminate, right? That's pretty mm-hmm. non-controversial. Our laws um, reflect that in, in education. Then there's the notion of meritocracy, right? That, um, that that career should be open to talents, that if you rise to the top, that you, sh- you deserve uh, in some sense to have your talents and abilities um, recognized and uh, respected. Again, that's not very controversial, although, you know, obviously right. there's some disagreement about. But, but, but of course, it's just a principle, right? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a principle which has weight and yields to other principles sometimes. That's right. Yeah. The, the one that's really controversial is the notion of equal life chances. And this starts with that you can have formal equality, right? But if, if others enter into the competition with advantages, there's always going to be an une- uneven playing field, Right. Right, And even if we could, for example, spend enough across the board for all children and we could equalize funding, there's still going to be some uh, advantages that are conferred by the way that we raise our children, right? If mm-hmm. I read my, my son every night, he's got an advantage over someone who just puts their children in front of TV all day, right? That uh, can't be eliminated, but there is this idea that we should uh, try to achieve equal life chances, that regardless of your initial place in the social system, that your income or your uh, your race or your gender, that, that you should have an opportunity, uh, an, an equal opportunity to achieve what you want in life. So, 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 so this, is, this is one of the output theories, right? One of the, regardless of inputs, we need to we we need to meet some criteria with respect to the outputs, right? And, right. and, they, and there are different theories about outputs. This is about life chances. And and one interesting thing here is like you mentioned, like reading to your kids, these are ways that you personally can affect the inputs that produces mm-hmm. outputs. But the, the other thing, of course, is that kids are like inherently different. Like one kid may come in and be like really, really good at math. Another may be very artistic. Another may be a beautiful writer. Uh, others and, and each of them may have some facility for those things, but but struggle at others. And some kid may be, you know, really good at soccer and people have different capabilities coming into it. And so how does um, how does equal life chances as a theory 
take account of that? Does it say that the person who's who has the talent for soccer should have just as good a life, but no better than the person who's you know has the natural talent at math? And and so the what we want to do with those inputs is is help the soccer player become a better soccer player and the math person become a better math person. But we don't want to shove a bunch of like math inputs at the uh, at at the kid who's good at soccer but not math. Yeah, it depends on what view of equality of opportunity you're you're uh, advocating for. So Rawls's view would be that we're trying to neutralize arbitrary social circumstances, primarily mm-hmm. class, right? The, uh, on on chance, you know, on equal life chances. Rawls was not in favor of trying to neutralize uh, what you've been describing, which is native talents and abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, instead. Uh, Rawls uh, subscribed to uh, the difference principle, right? Which right. is that the winners of the natural lottery, those can be, they can become winners, and that's fine, as long as uh, it rebounds to the the benefit of everyone else, the least advantaged members of society. Um, and so Rawls was not trying to, or trying to advocate that we should completely try to neutralize native talents and abilities. And, and, and so that's his version. The luck egalitarian version is, well, why not? I mean, if we're really concerned about leveling the playing field, we should try to, um, we should try to neutralize uh, not only class and, and, uh, but also innate talents and abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, that's a, a fairly aggressive and controversial position, <laughs> right? To say the least. But but it, it's it's one it's one that gains uh, force when we when you kind of you know uh, concentrate your focus on a few salient features. Like if you're an econ if you're in an economy which is totally driven by having a strong back, mm-hmm. right? Then you may be really good at all kinds of things which don't actually produce great economic outputs. Uh, and, and so that that natural or inherent difference in having a strong back is going to mean everything for your life chances, right? Mm-hmm. And and so maybe the lack of luck at having a weak back is you know somehow the the target. Where is if you're in an economy where there are many many different talents that can produce satisfaction in life, then then maybe it has less force. I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but and I would think in our co- economy, the obvious example of that is literacy, right? Where if you're e- that that the the resources you might be prepared to put into helping a child make up a deficit in their ability to read ought to reflect some understanding of the fact that that skill is one that without which so many other things will become unavailable mm-hmm. in a way that, uh, that you wouldn't say that of some other things right? right um that that literacy is sort of maybe what having a strong back was in an agrarian right. economy. I don't know. I haven't lived in one. Uh, so, but, but literacy here, it's just so profoundly basic to everything else, um, including the ability to learn other things uh, that how could you not focus on that out of, out of proportion to these other issues? And that, that seems to bleed into a capacities or capabilities theory. Doesn't it, Josh, that, uh-huh. that, that, that maybe what we need to focus on is, you know, spending to overcome bad luck with respect to basic capabilities, or I, I, I like the I, I, the term that I'm kind of thinking of in my head right now is gateway capabilities, mm. right? Without which you can't participate in society. Right. But yeah, I don't know if that was from your paper or not. If that's and that's sort of a positive reason. version of what it, you might call a choke point or or a bottleneck, 
Right. You're saying and think of it as a gateway. Yeah, because I'm and a glass half full person. And oh, you're glass absolutely. Half empty. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, but no, this gateway idea. That's a great. I think that's a great way. We to could, think we could about. combine it and we could call it a chokeway. <laughs> uh, so are we are we mixing too many theories together here or are we uh josh or is this getting at well where you want to go next fact, well no and in fact we that's that reflects sort of the the chronology of of what happened in in the state court so initially when what's called the first wave of state school finance litigation uh you had sort of formal equality being advocated right um a type of horizontal equity where we're just concerned about equalizing funding, mm-hmm. and uh, th- that that was reflected in the first. And s- by the s- time of the second wave, when we're when we're now going into state courts, uh, instead of trying to um, uh, and trying trying to rely on the U.S. Constitution, now we're going into state co- court constitutions. We are we're now recognizing that horizontal equity, just equalizing across the board, is not going to uh, produce substantial equality or fair equality of opportunity, as Rawls would put it, because, because in fact, what certain disadvantaged students need is more funding and more resources and uh, not equal, right? It, it costs more to teach a kid how to read who's never been read to at home. Right, uh, and this or, or who has emotional or intellectual deficits. I mean, it costs more. Whatever the source, yeah. right? Yeah. So this is the recognition of that. that no, we don't need horizontal equity. We need some sort of vertical equity that can attempt to 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 mitigate these natural and social dis, uh, disadvantages that certain students have. Um, so you have um, by the third wave when we're getting into the adequacy decisions. Courts are recognizing this and starting to incorporate these vertical equity principles in their decisions, recognizing that certain poor urban districts are going to need more resources in order to um, in order to uh, meet their needs. But once we get here, there's a natural limit, right? Because you you just can't spend enough to ensure right. that everybody is exactly the same. Like not everybody's going to get into Princeton and it's a waste of social resources to send everybody like, you know, you would like everybody to explore their natural talents and be happy with the uh and be happy with what they achieve in life and unlock new talents and develop them but you know uh uh, harvard law school is not for everybody a juilliard is not for everybody and it's kind of a waste of resources just to to bring everybody up to a level where they could go to one i mean first of all you can't right Mm -hmm. Uh, right yeah go ahead and i don't think any court has as even suggested that what we're trying to achieve is a quality of outcomes, right? Oh, you see that rhetoric sometimes. And I think, you know, even though that's the the move, that reality mm-hmm. is what is is the kind of the natural limitation of that principle. I that's mean, you right. see rhetoric around that principle of like equality of output because mm-hmm. it sounds nice. Mm-hmm. But of course, that can't be that principle has a, you know, has very limited weight because of how easily it's overcome by the exigencies of reality, right? Right, right. And so, so what happens? So we get into adequacy. So, so yeah. adequacy uh, uh, takes off in the late eighties, um, primarily because of the political backlash uh, from uh, some some courts were were balking at the notion that they sh- that they that you know that their constitutions required uh, this kind of substantive equality of opportunity or fair equality of opportunity, and and they were getting a lot of pl- pl- political pushback from. From you know wealthy suburban districts who didn't want to who didn't want uh, the funds to be redistributed, um, and 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 coinciding with that, you also had the release of a report in 1983, a Nation at Risk, which suggested a rising tide of mediocrity 
in 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 the in the in the country. Um, and so there was a at this time a call for standards, right? Mm-hmm. That we need higher standards to compete in the uh, to you know make the United States competitive once again in the world. I'm pretty sure this is when I was in K twelve. This is I was part of that rising tide of mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> I was too. Yeah. So the um, advocate that recognized that this this the winds were shifting and uh, they latched onto this momentum and and started at, uh, started seeking not uh, equalized funding but uh, funding that would be sufficient for all students to meet a certain qualitative threshold. Right, mm-hmm. some absolute rather than relative threshold that all students would be able to meet in order to uh, be responsible and productive citizens. Yeah, here the model is: if you can, if you can read, and you can, you have some facility with math, like you've met a basic level, you're now you can participate in the economy because now the 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 world of jobs which is open to you is more than manual labor, and the world demands a lot more than manual labor for good paying jobs. So. Uh, there's a basic level at which you can ma- attain contentment and pursue a quality life, right? Where in this, where in this deve- series of developments do people start um, coping with the fact that whatever the public spending may be, there also is an enormous role of private spending? So is there, at some point, do, are the state court judges trying to figure out uh, w- how they take account of the fact that surely no one's prepared to say, you know, parents are prohibited from spending privately to support what's going on in their local school. Right. Uh, so where, where, but where do we start to reckon with that? That was part of the recognition in the adequacy decisions, right? That, that we're not going to be able to prevent the wealthy districts from spending more. This is, this uh, is the education but, funding version of campaign finance reform. Yeah. So yeah, you, sort of, right? So if but, you establish those minimally sufficient criteria, I uh-huh. guess you can as long as you have some some way to not just stay say we need a standard but measure achievement of that standard. Uh-huh. Then you then you say, well, it doesn't, you know, the fact that you're spending more privately in your district is neither here nor there as long as there's uh-huh. enough public money to support what's needed in these other districts. Would that be the argument? Yeah, because it it goes it ties back to the the notion that sufficiency doctrine, uh, right? Philosophically, what matters what matters to us morally is not that one group of people have more than another, but that one group of people are able then to translate those resources into some advantage and be able to subjugate other people, right? And that's what bothers us about inequality. Um, and as long as you make that impossible by um, by making sure that people rise to a certain threshold so that they can live free of that deprivation so that they can withstand the subrogation politically, socially, economically, then that's all that we really care about uh, from a moral point of view. That would be what the, uh, the sufficiency doctrine is concedes. Okay, now one, one challenge to that, and, and I know you deal with it in the paper, and I wonder how you'd, how you'd summarize it, but the is that education, in fact, is a I guess what economists call a positional good, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, right. you know, if I go, you know, if, if you go to um, uh, a lesser school and I go to a better school, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be able to outcompete you for the job. In other words, mm-hmm. education is a good that is uh, the, the kind of the, the, the more quality you have, mm-hmm. uh, the better you can compete in the future. And so it's the adequacy and sufficiency don't quite 
describe what people are looking for. It's not like, you, you know, rich parents don't say, well, we've got enough education. We're, you know, that that's enough. Some do, I guess. But mm-hmm. so how do you, how, what's the response from the um, sufficiency folks to the positional good argument? Well, the, the sufficiency folks tend to recognize that limitation. In fact, say, well, then at a certain point, the inequalities become intolerable, right? And, and that's when we may need to recalibrate um, our threshold. Or uh, Elizabeth Anderson one is, is one of the leading proponents of uh, ad- adequacy in education. Um, she suggests that one way to sort of level this out is through uh, more aggressive social, uh, racial, uh, affirmative action, class-based and race-based affirmative action into college. So that's, that's her response. And, and Deborah Satz is the other uh, leading advocacy um, um, voice. And she's, she suggests that there is a certain level at which it becomes intolerable. And we do, and we have to recognize that. And then we have to sort of build into our, our threshold, right? We didn't have to recalibrate our threshold to accommodate that. Um, so that those inequalities don't prevent people from being competitive in for jobs and and for high quality education. And should it be? I, I, I imagine there are solutions both within educational funding, within um, educational design, but also without. Right? I mean, so one way to attack the problem about sufficiency is getting rid of unpaid internships. Right? Um, getting ripping out kind of root and branch all of the kind of network effects of having kind of gathered elite people together at the same institution mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, at least evaluating more on the merits somehow and almost like a, like a title seven to prevent people from discriminating against you because of your college or something. You know, I, you can imagine mm-hmm. all kinds of things that you could do to try to make it so that it doesn't, well, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, there, I, I, I think what their, their notion is, is that we somehow build it into the cost of, of what we perceived to be the cost of is an ad, adequate education, right? So that we um, we try to recognize that there are these advantages and try to accommodate them when we're figuring out what does it cost? What's it going to cost to bring every student up to this adequate uh, threshold? Um, and I guess that is their, that is their, their at least ever sats is our argument that we should do. What do you think is realistic? I, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, what are, is it just nudging away? I tend to think that the, that the most realistic thing that we can shoot for is in general, the elimination of undue suffering. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that, well, I think, yeah, I go think ahead. we could, I think what is realistic is to have, is in, in terms of adequacy is to have very high adequacy thresholds. Yeah. Um, don't set the bar too low. Right. If we're, it, if we're going to do this, we're going to need high adequacy thresholds that are sensitive to children's capabilities to compete. That is realistic. We could raise the standards. Now, states don't want to, right, because that that entails spending more on education to, to meet those standards. But that is possible. We can um, set the standards high. So what's the state of the art in this litigate? We, we, you were discussing a wave that, that was in the 80s, and that was already the third wave. We must be up to the 18th wave by now. What's the, what, what's <laughs> well, the state of the art? Because, you know, you pick up the paper and you read about the fact that, you know, for example, the Kansas Supreme Court and the Kansas legislature are apparently still at one another's throats mm-hmm. um, and have been for the last few years. So, so what, how are things unfolding now? 
Yeah, I would. I, I guess um, I don't know that any scholar has ne necessarily said we're we've we've moved on to a fourth wave. But I, I guess if if I were looking at the last decade, I would say that what has happened in the last decade decade has been uh, both good and bad. In this, in that um, you have decisions like the Kansas decision, the New Jersey decisions. Um, where they are trying to achieve both equality and adequacy. Uh, and that's what I think is necessary. Um, and then the, but the disappointing thing about the past decade has been that um, a lot of state courts now are starting to defer more and more to their uh, legislatures um, and are starting to, I mean, we have some courts who, are no, who just have thrown up their hands right, because they've gotten re resistance from legislators. Um, uh, despite repeated orders, they are, are just being ignored. And and so some are just giving up. Some are just deferring more and more in terms of letting the legislatures craft the remedies. And, and so there's this now there's this lingering doubt about the extent to which the right to education really is justiciable. Can we, can we jump back to the... Um... Uh, to the kind of the marriage of equality and adequacy yes. and, and, and set aside um, for now, like there's a whole kind of literature on design that mm -hmm. could be helpful here in terms of like massive reintegration and, and putting kids who are, uh, who are kind of ready for school and have, with kids who are maybe not ready for school and that somehow helps. I mean, that was part of the Vox article, I think. And uh, so, so I think all that's very important in terms of designing the system you have, but in terms of, and then of course also set aside the whole like, the the segment of the education reform economy, which are grifters, yeah. <laughs> there's a huge chunk of that too. So right. it's it's all a big mess politically. But if we just look at the principles of funding, uh -huh. um, what 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 sense when you say marry equality with adequacy, I can I can understand like a a high sense of adequacy. This is you know it, funding right. which would be enough to produce certain results in the median kid and certain other results in the lower performing kid. You know you can kind of look at outputs a little bit and figure out what you think is adequate in terms of inputs. But what mm -hmm. notion of equality are you using there? Um, is it is it just equality of input or is it um, equality of input, you know, counting the fact that the PTAs and rich counties will have, you know, more uh, private impact? What, what notion of equality are you using? Well, I, I am not uh, strictly talking about equality. Um, I'm talking about um, vertical equity. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, targeting resources to the neediest or most disadvantaged children, that that would be what I'm talking about when I say equality. I, I just use quality because that's, you know, that's sort of the, the language that has been used. But um, and vertical in the sense that you're trying to close a distance. Right. Okay. Right. And, and you can only you can only um, reduce that gap so much, right? And and that's got to be an awareness that. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the things I say. Look, equality and adequacy are always going to conceptually be mutually exclusive if we are committed to the notion of that equality has to be equal life chances, because that is just not possible. Equal mm -hmm. life chances is just not. It can't be achieved. But satisfying life chances can. Yeah, right? or bringing or reducing, yeah, re well, you, we, what we could do is we can um, approximate equal life chances, right? We can try to reduce disparities to a certain point. Um, and then if we, you know, if we have a high threshold adequacy, 
Well, that that's almost the same thing as um, trying to achieve equal life chances. But are all are all inputs commensurable? Oh, I got two questions really, and you can t- maybe you just take whichever one is interesting to you. <laughs> but uh, so so one is like some. You know, input sounds very unidimensional, and and you know, I'm enough of a law and economist to think that that things ultimately might be commensurable, and so you can reduce these inputs to to money or or time or resources. But uh, you know, one kid needs a very kind of a very different kind of input than another, right. maybe so different that the whole context is different, and maybe those two things are only education in the same sense, in the sense mm-hmm. that the kids are being educated. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the yes. different schools, everything else. So yeah. I, I wonder if um, if it's even worth thinking about equality, vertical equality between those two kinds of, because they're two different kinds of social problems. The other thing that I wanted to think about was uh, the fact that if you set up vertical equality, you're setting up a different kind of competition. Uh, you're setting up, uh, because people are going to scramble over educational resources because of the 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 value of education these days in our economy and you may get people competing for those resources by talking about their own needs and i, I think mark kelman wrote about this uh, uh, kind of a long time ago now um in jumping the queue right that this is kind of characterizing maybe garden variety bad readers as having a disability in order to acquire other inputs or output adjustments do you know what i'm talking about um, i'm sorry and, i don't know well so, so I mean, the, the idea would be that if we commit to kind of equalizing your kind of vertical equity mm-hmm. by bringing you up to a level, doesn't that set up an incentive to, um, to to argue that you need to be brought up to a certain level? Doesn't it argue? Does doesn't it in, create an incentive to characterize your you know poor performance as part of a disability? Um, it, it, it's a moral hazard problem, which we talked right. about earlier today, didn't we, Joe? Yeah, <laughs> this came up in another context. But, but so, but just to well, help me understand this better before before Josh jumps in, okay. what, what, uh, uh, this is this is the segment of the show called Joe clarifies because <laughs> <laughs> um, God knows we need it. Uh, I, I don't understand. Well, explain to me what would be the bad thing in this context of someone realizing that I could that there's a claim I can make on resources if I help people understand the sense in which I am vertically in a bigger gap instead of a smaller gap. It's just the social energy which is directed toward evaluating various claims of, of disability or gap, right? It sets up and it creates an incentive for you to claim a gap and everybody is going to try to... And in the instance up. where there is a gap, that sounds like a good thing for it, me to have done. In the sense does. where there's a bad one, plainly, it's not as good a thing for me to have done. And so yeah, you'd have to set up a regime where you could sort valid claims right. as against But also gaps, uh, gaps like this other thing are not unidimensional, right? I mean, we have different kinds of, you know, I'm always going to be pushing to recognize my particular need is one that needs to be filled up. Like we are multidimensional human yes, beings with all f- kinds of talents. And, and so you get all kinds of trade-offs, which are ultimately going to be hard to resolve. Like how much do we need to bring up my singing talent versus my reading talent and you know i'm yeah and i guess it's you could have a question about like what's the alternative right i mean in in the absence of people arguing about this what would they be arguing about i take it the answer isn't nothing right they'd be arguing about something about their own about their own claims on a set of resources push it over to josh because i kind of wanted to go towards an equality of input idea followed in life by a guaranteed basic income 
which is my universal answer for everything, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, which I actually think has some chance of attracting conservative interest, ironically enough. But, yeah, uh, but interestingly. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so, so does any of this make – does Joe's clarification trademark make any I sense, think, uh, No, I, I think it does and I think that uh, – I think that it is – essentially been settled i mean as long in terms of what the state courts have recognized um as what is constitutionally required um so that at least some state courts have already recognized that um what we're trying to do right wait here, wait wait when you say that you mean recognized recognized what and and this that, is that, yeah go ahead that there are students who are disadvantaged and who need to be brought up to a certain level right so that they can um so they can function as equal citizens um, and that they can be productive in the economy and they can have a chance uh, to be competitive. Well, this, I, yeah. I think that that's already settled, at least in, you know, in. in well, in, in those few states that have recognized these claims, right? Sure, sure. But I, I think that there's, I don't, I guess I'd, uh, I, I guess I'd see it I'd be a, very challenging to roll back that notion um, because of some concern that, I guess what you're saying is that it would recognize that the students themselves, the disadvantaged students, are somehow defect, deficient, or and, and that that would be a basis for us to uh, judge them. Or well, it just it sets up an economy of deficiency claims, right? It yeah. sets up a you know where where your the inputs to which you're entitled depend on your ability to show the ways in which you fall below the norm. And right. or, substantially, and you, you can try to make that qualitatively different by trying to characterize a disability as one thing and just kind of, right. you know, garden variety, you know, somewhere along the bell curve in another way. But inevitably, it's going to get complicated. So you you're know. worried about uh, expressions of pity? Uh, n- or, no, it, it's, it's – Or well, is it about envy? I'm worried about – no, I'm, I'm more worried about um, – kind of transaction costs and social resources than I am about uh, okay. emo- emotions about it because the, right. you, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, and, and I just wonder if all of this is worth it because you're calling for a pretty fine grained analysis of like what people need and which, which we may well want to do, but couldn't we just get a long way towards our goal by saying you can't all educational funding is going to be based on per pupil subvention from the state. That's like our baseline. Oh, sure. That's the most progressive is just to have all funding come from the state. Yeah. And and, right. and, and is it worth and, complicating In a regime that? where you'd prohibit private spending. Well, <laughs> see, that's well, a problem, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, and I friendly amendment. It's not a problem. It's the problem, right? Yes. If you're, if you're going to think seriously about how this all shakes out in, in a real system, Right. Um, and this has become. I, I don't know. This was a problem, problem in single payer in in various healthcare regimes yeah. as well. That that in if you don't that that if you don't address the question whether or not people will be able to spend private money on healthcare services in a context where most of the money for healthcare services comes from public spending, you have not actually addressed the complete picture. You have not addressed the complete picture, but boy, you've gone a hell of a long way. Right. If if you can just I, I really do think that y- you could go a long way just by getting rid of the, you know, of the county based um, or, or school district based, to be more precise, uh, method of, of funding. It, it, you would still have these inequalities and they eventually could swamp the equality that you produce by equalizing funding per mm-hmm. people or something like that. But 
uh, it would go a, a great distance in the same way that you can imagine a system with single payer. I'm glad you brought up the example. You know, I, I know they have these problems in England. I'm not totally familiar with how they've played out in terms of getting private insurance and everything else. But boy, it's a heck of a lot better than the hellscape of a totally privatized uh, right. insurance system that where you had a bunch of uninsured and you had all kinds of moral hazard and the people paying for it weren't the people. Education is kind of the same way, right? Yep. Like the people paying for it are not the consumers of it in the same way yep. it, because the kids, after all, they're not paying for it, right? And, and they don't even – a good chunk of them don't even see the value in it. Right. A lot of the time, like they would rather not go to school. Yeah. <laughs> and and some of the parents don't pay. in. You know, it's it's a very complicated market in that sense, in the same way or not in the same way, but in a in a way which is as complicated, perhaps, as the weird market for healthcare. Mm -hmm. Right. See, I think if you have high thresholds that can diminish positional advantages, um, I think states uh, have already tried to address vertical equality through categorical funding, um, targeted funding, weighted student funding formulas. Um, I just think they, didn't, they need to do more of that, yeah. right, instead of less. And so I think that those two concepts can merge uh, if we're willing to, if we're willing to, in terms of the equality standard, not try to achieve equal life chances. And on the adequacy standard, if, we're, if we recognize that at a certain level, when, when, um, when, there are students who are way above the threshold, that they are going to have significant positional advantages. And at that point, we are going to need to recalibrate the threshold. Mm -hmm. And I think if we recognize both of those things, get away from the extremes of both of those principles, they can coincide in a way that I think would, would produce better outcomes. So, so in terms of the second paper, um, I see equality and adequacy actually merging through the prevailing forms and functions of the right to education. Um, and, and so if we, if we wanted to go through Hofeld, we could do that. Um, I've done that elsewhere. J Joe, you're shaking. Okay. Your, Joe is shaking his head. No. And I, I, okay, I, that's so, fine. I, I, would I just don't think it can be done orally. I think Hofeld is sufficiently challenging yeah. that if you don't have things in print in front of you, right. it is absolutely right. hopeless. But I think we can say a few things about what the debate is about without saying anything necessarily about Hofeld. And, um, I am going to put, do you mind if I am selfish and put up my own paper in the show notes this time? <laughs> I've got this origins of the public private theory of legal systems that has an analysis of, of Hofeld in it, and then it applies it in an institutional context that, that actually I felt a lot of, um, uh, um, uh, connection to what you were, to what you were doing, although I wasn't considering it in an educational context, but I mean, the idea is there, it's like, how are we, you know, so this is, we're just a collection of people cooperating. Right. And, and one of the things we're cooperating on is educating our kids and we're organized in these institutions. We've got states, we've got state legislatures, which are sub, and we've got state courts, we've got the United States Supreme, we've got all these institutions and education is a function that we're doing together. And we think kind of partly at the district level and partly at the state level and, um, and, and partly, you know, part of national citizenship is becoming an educated person. And kind of one of the basic questions we're trying to ask is, you know whose responsibility is it to uh to provide that and in and in what way so if i'm complaining about the adequacy of that provision to the collective how do we think about that claim that i'm making right how do we is it is it that the that the an entity which could do something about it like the legislature is it that they have violated some obligation to me is it that the um that the state needs to 
have some kind of negotiated solution between its Supreme Court and its legislature, and that we we want them to have that solution for institutional reasons that the that the court is more likely to to be an advocate for equality principles, whereas the legislature is more likely to be an advocate for democratic principles. I mean, you can imagine different ways of conceiving of what the person is asking who goes to court and sues, right? And and part of the paper is about conceptualizing, like, is it when you say you have a right to education, are, is what you're saying that the legislature has a duty to provide for a certain, under a certain theory of equality, that education? Are you saying instead that, um, that you have a... Uh, um, or, or that instead the legislature is forbidden, you know, that you have an immunity, I guess is the way that Hofel would say it. It's not that you have a right to get them to do a particular act or not do a particular act. It's that you have an immunity from a certain kind of law. And that law would be an educational funding law, which would be unequal or something like that. So Hofel conceives of these in, in different ways. And you've taken advantage of that in the paper to show that they're I think that part of the problem here is conceiving of exactly what someone is asking for when they when they assert a right to education. Right? That's right. And, and the lesson that we can draw from the state constitutional experiment is to appreciate how often courts have formulated the right to education, both to compel states to provide, to compel action, and to block action, right, to, to really simplify it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, courts have... have interpreted the right to compel states to provide an adequate education, and they have blocked state action uh, in the form of distributing educational opportunities unequally. Um, and, and, so, and, and the latter is a, is a pretty typical move for a court, right? The right. legislature does something, I've got some standard, whether it's equality or substantive, and under that standard, I think the legislature has gone beyond the basic agreement in the Constitution, and I strike it down for that reason. That's something that's you know, as uh, pretty much as old as the founding and the as the uh, as the framing of the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, and but, what many people don't appreciate is that many of the constitutional entitlements that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights are actually in the form of this immunity, right? Uh, that we have instead of a uh, instead of a right to some affirmative uh, action on the part of the state. Exactly, but I, it's interesting because, um, and this kind of ties in with stuff that I'm working on. I think whether you see it as an immunity from some kind of act which changes the law, in other mm-hmm. words, you have some entitlement to a particular kind of legal change or against some kind of legal change, or mm-hmm. you see it as the imposition of a personal duty on the behavior of legislators, that those are equivalent ways of looking at the same thing. Right. And, and, and basically, each involves a different model of law. Mm-hmm. And those models are fine. We can mm-hmm. accept or reject either one. One mm-hmm. of them may feel more right in a particular situation, but they're both describing very similar things. And the core problem that you're observing here is not so much whether that like duty imposing or immunity conferring um, uh, idea is really the quote unquote the right one, because I don't think there is one. I think they're both l- possibly legitimate models of a particular institutional structure. Rather, you're wrangling with the problem of of something which looks like a court imposing a positive duty on something that looks like the legislature. I, I know I use the word duty there, so it looks like I took a side. But what I'm, what I'm really saying is that a legislative-like thing is being told to legislate in a particular way. And it's that positive-negative thing, which is really the rat's nest that we're in. Mm-hmm. And, and, and maybe looking at these, you know, what well, you tell me, whether kind of going through whether what the person is asserting is an immunity or a right sheds any light on kind of undoing that 
rat's nest. Did that make any sense? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, uh, the the what Hofeldian form the right takes is going to dictate, I think, the the scope of the remedy uh, and what courts are are able to do um, in, in the face of a school in the face of a challenge, a constitutional challenge. But I think what the the paper adds that hasn't probably been addressed yet is this notion, okay, we know what form the right to education has taken, and we know that there's some implication to that. But then what function does the right serve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think the the discussion about the fact that each of the Hofeldian forms has uh, a parallel function um, that that um, is significant. Um, and if we look at what function is served by the right to education, historically uh, and through various courts' interpretations, the function is a protection function, right? What we're trying to protect is children's um, the is children's rights to to uh, equality and to uh, a positive version of liberty, right? Their mm-hmm. their their capacity to be equal and productive citizens uh, and productive members of the economy. That that part of it hasn't been really addressed yet. Um, I don't think. So, so you're kind of building on this like molecular um, idea of the building on the Hofeldian rights to say there's more to them. Right. But I wonder once you, once you put it like that though, I start to wonder if you're really describing a, a discrete um, Hofeldian uh, duty or immunity, or if you're really describing a Dworkinian principle. You know, this is, it doesn't matter that it's Dworkin, but what you're really describing is a, is a principle in the law, which again has, rather than being a rule, something you act on, you know, all or nothing, something which has weight, right? So that, you know, the, the right of a kid to have an education and be adequately prepared to be a citizen and engage in the economy is a principle which is very dear to us. We also have other principles like survival. And if suddenly there were a, you know, I don't know, some kind of nuclear holocaust or accident and we, you know, the principle of, of equipping kids to the same degree would yield to the principle to feed ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and, and so that's a very dramatic version. But even in a just a regular modern economy, the principle of preparing every kid adequately to be a citizen, you know, having that probably will yield to other principles at a certain point. Uh, but if you describe that principle not as a principle, but as a as a Hofeldian immunity or 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 duty, then it's harder to see how it can yield. Um, I don't I don't know if you agree with that, but well, that's interesting. I never I actually never thought of it in that way. Whether whether it uh, when you characterize the function as a rule or as or as a principle, I guess I would agree that it is is more of a principle. Although, just in terms of understanding what a right is, our ordinary understanding of a right, we have to, I think we not only need a sense of the form of the right, but also what function it serves. Yeah. Well, how does the form, yeah. how does establishing the function and understanding it better as a protection function, how does that help the courts adjudicate these cases better? Well, because, okay, so, so what motivated me to write this paper uh, was, um, well, actually, Scott Barris, uh, who has written in this area. And he conceptualizes the right to education as, uh, he says it's a modest immunity um, that imposes very few disabilities on state legislatures. And, and I worried about the implication of that view. So 
Um, so, for example, if he was correct that the only affirmative duties that are imposed on the state were duties to legislate, that is, duties to perform, the, the function is performance or provision to provide education. Well, all states are doing that. All states are performing. They're, every year they enact a budget, right? Every year um, they provide an education, a basic education. And, and so I don't think that that's very controversial or, or meaningful at all. Um, what is controversial is, is, is the extent to which they're providing the education, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that gets us into uh, whether the provision of education is adequate or equitable. That is what, and, and that in turn, to answer that question, we have to ask, well, what function is it serving? Is it, is it actually serving the function to protect children's liberty and equality interests? Um, and if courts are recognizing that that is the uh, essential function uh, of the right to education, that both the claim right and the immunity share that essential function, um, I think that they, they will be asking those types of questions. So again, from the perspective of the immunity rather mm-hmm. than the right, what is the what is knowing that it's a protection of of as you've described it? How does mm-hmm. that how does that help a court decide what the legislature is precluded from doing? Well, but, it's it's precluded from distributing educational opportunities in a way that um, would. Um, not improve vertical equity. Let, let me let me try. Can I try Christian's clarification, which is sure. an, really not a thing, by the way. It's I, <laughs> I, I, speaking of functions, I pretty much never serve. Yeah, that it function. would be a first. <laughs> um, I, I think you're. I think what you're asking, Joe, is is how does redescribing the right being asserted help solve the court's institutional legitimacy problem? That like the, the the thing which is keeping the court from ordering the legislature to do a particular set of things is its own institutional role. And normally it looks to the Constitution, the state constitution in, in states, for guidance on the proper scope of its authorities and to its own history for the proper scope of its authority. And so so if we look back in, in history and we look at the Constitution and we see a right to education, I guess the form of that right the interpretation of that right would infor- again would kind of would be the gateway for action you know is this the kind of thing which justifies the court as an institution uh in interfering with the legislature in this particular way an unusual way right forcing them to legislate in a particular way rather than just saying you can't legislate in that particular way is that is is that not a clarification or is that yeah that helps wow that is a first. Yeah. Drop, <laughs> drop a marker. And this is this may be an occasion to use a sound effect. <laughs> no, I'll keep that for my class. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Okay. Uh, d- d- does that make any sense, Josh? For uh, it does well, for Joe, I, but I, I don't know if that does for anybody. But but Joe and no, me. I, I think I understand what what you're driving at. It and and I think uh, does it solve the problem? Of, does it solve the problem where there are some courts that are just going to lack the judicial courage to? To, to do what the constitu- their constitutions say? No, right? I don't think that that's going to solve the problem. Um, my, I guess my, um, the purpose that I was trying to uh, clarify these things is, is for those courts that are, that, aren't, right. that, are, that are involved in these cases, that continue to be involved in these cases, um, to uh, give them some um, ammunition, right? In terms of 
um, you not only, uh, the legislature, you don't only have a duty to provide education or to enact an education, you know, to, to, to get, come up with a budget. You have a duty um, to, um, through education, protect children's life chances. And not uh, only that, but you have a duty that we legitimately can, can ask you, I mean, we can, we can ask you in a commanding way to do. Right. And right. then it's like, and, and I think that's the, um, um, I, I think what you're saying is it's important to get rights talk correct. Mm-hmm. Um, be, because, you know, a court otherwise may say, yeah, I know what a right is, a right to education. A right just means that the, you, you can't pass a law which abrogates that right. Like, you know, it, it, yeah. it, it you know, it, what Hofel would call an immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're saying, no, if we describe the right more, uh, um, uh, more extensively, and we can connect that with constitutional text, and we can connect that with interests that are that that we can demonstrate to a court can be cabined, so that this doesn't give them unlimited power over policy. And we can connect that with constitutional history, and we can connect that with you know, things that people expect. Then all of that together gives the court an understanding that okay, this is a claim that this person is making, which will cause us to order the legislature to do something. And we think we can do that legitimately. And you're saying that this, that the way that we talk about that thing that the person is asking about matters, right? It is. And, yeah. and you, and you put it much better than I did. So uh, I, <laughs> I, I don't think so. Cause I do think these papers are, are beautifully written. So, and the thing that protection makes me think about in this context, especially with respect to the judicial role is it, it really connects to the notion of, uh, it, it, precaution or negligence and the a court's comfort with ensuring or, or being able to state how someone fell below a duty of care. And so if you talk about the legislature's obligation to, to protect um, educational sort of opportunities and outcomes and, and, and the things that go into providing them, that a court could explain how the legislature's failure to ensure that it was funding in particular ways fell below a duty of care to the children receiving education. Like, I feel like that the, 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 the notion of negligently funding systems. Well, that's my institutional point. Starts to make some sense from a judicial perspective, right? Yeah, because that's the, the, the kind of talk you just engaged in was kind of a different model of law, which looked at the citizen as being kind of on an equal plane as the people who make up the legislator and those people having t- duties, right? And you're, you're modeling law as requiring tort-like duties of the legislators, right? Rather well, than this, And this is something that a court can articulate, right? A court can articulate to the party who has fell below the, st- the standard of care. Right. Hey, wait a minute. You fell below the standard of care. Yeah, but, you're, you're not yeah, but then are we, are we focusing too much on process and not substance? It would be my concern. Well, I, and, did, and, did, did, did and my rejoinder would be, of course not, because they're both the same thing. Um, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> that you can't do, you can't talk meaningfully about one without addressing the other at some point, right? You can't, you could obsess a process all day long. And if you, if you don't realize that's not having substantive effects, that's foolish. Contrarywise, you could say, these are the substantive things I care about. I don't really care about process. I would say, well, you know, that's a bit short sighted because, process is going to have substantive consequence. So uh, the two, I don't think, can ever really be fully extricated one from the other. Well, well, in fact, I, what I was going to say is Scott, um, the, who motivated me to write this piece, 
his his view is that the only affirmative duties imposed on states are duties to legislate, and he thinks that that duty can be analogized to fiduciary duties of care a board a corporate board of directors might owe shareholders of corporation. So, in fact, on his view, he thinks that courts should limit initial judicial review to legislative process and not substance. Yeah, but the whole reason the business judgment rule functions in that way, talking about fiduciaries in the context of boards and shareholders, the whole reason the business judgment rule functions that way is because there are lots of reasons to expect that the the market can discipline board choices and the court as a second or third or fourth best alternative isn't 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 particularly helpful, right? Um, and I think that's not – you're telling a very different story if you're talking about what is a, what essentially boils down to some version of footnote four in Caroline Products right, was, yeah. for political dysfunction in the context of providing educational It's interesting though, isn't it? Right? Because like who's the board of directors in the legislative example? Uh-huh. It's, it, if it's not the court, then it's lobbyists, <laughs> right? Because the shareholders are the people. Yeah. And who's the board which is looking out for enduring principles of the people? Uh, that otherwise are likely to be overcome by principal agent problems. Yeah. And this is why, again, focusing on the function, yeah. I mean, that's a real genius of, of, of Josh's, of, of Josh, of your, of your approach, because that gets you focused on the, the, the sort of the, the kind of the real thing you're trying to move or the real thing you're trying to accomplish. And, and for, um for, for this other gentleman's, focus on things like the business judgment rule, great. That tells you what he's really trying to accomplish, which is he's trying to protect the legislature's prerogatives from judicial oversight. And I think he's trying to strike the right balance. And, right. and, I, and I think that I think I, I don't disagree with his approach at looking at process, but I also want to get to the substance eventually. Right. Yeah. Um, and I know you <laughs> it may not be helpful <laughs> To distinguish them like that, but um, <laughs> um, but I guess I agree that I think that I think that the right to education has a bit more bite, right? That if we adhere to the original purposes and subsequent justifications of the right, it's meant to be this claim right that functions to protect children from educational deprivation and the freedom to be responsible and productive citizens, right? That that um, that that function matters. In terms of how we talk about whether the the state is uh, is is complying with its constitutional obligations. All right, we we, we are never going to do this uh, both of these articles justice in one show. And <laughs> as as uh, uh, Josh, you are now our educational correspondent for the oh, show. Great. I don't I didn't I, I don't know if Joe told you you have an ongoing responsibility to oral <laughs> argument them now, but but you do. Yeah, uh, I conveniently omitted that. Oh, did you? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, this is like this is like the Daily Show used to have the chief whatever correspondent. Yes. Um, and and but but actually, Josh works in this field, so it makes sense. Oh, uh, I love but, to be like a Daily Show. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Joe is our chief knitting correspondent. That's right. I am. Uh, I am. Um, listen, but but before before we go, Josh, if let me just ask you if you could like if you could turn one dial. And you can only turn one dial on this issue. Such an and, unfair question. Well, but let, well, let me let me simplify because I'm going to put aside all of the cool design. I think we need another show devoted to design issues, which are not about funding, mm. right? The integration, all these right. like clearly, right? And and those may be 
if not a silver bullet, a bunch of silver bullets, which could solve the problem. You may have to fire all of them to solve the yes. problem, right? But funding we definitely is, want riddled bodies. Yeah. yeah. But if you could turn one dial here on, you know, whether it's jurisprudence or it's like legislative make, oh, I don't know what, or it's state constitutions or revisiting San Antonio, uh, what, what would it be for you, Josh? Wow. That's a good question. This is the, uh, that's what you've just exhibited is the quiz master effect where the person asking the question sounds smarter because, <laughs> because they asked the question. I have no idea how to answer it. So I think it's a pretty crappy question, but I'm hoping for a great answer. So, and I don't know what that answer would be. I'm just allowed to turn one dial. Yeah. If you only could turn one dial. Because after all, you know, the reason I think it's a somewhat fair question is because mm-hmm. oftentimes in these like negotiated settlements of these things and the political mm-hmm. battles, you may get one thing, right? right, which is positive and you give up something else. And I'm wondering what that one thing would be for you that you would not compromise on or give something else up in order to get, you know? I guess I would start initially with, well, I'm going to cheat a little bit and say higher standards and more funding. Right. <laughs> Two dials. Yes. Yeah. I think they have to go hand in hand. And higher standards um, for what? To, to set the threshold, right? To set the adequacy threshold. And that's got to be set across the board, right? Um, this is measuring student, it's, student, yeah, it's student gotta be achievement? Yeah, it's got to be the high threshold. If I could turn one dial, I guess it would be that one first because I think that that would, you know, uh, if we had a high threshold, then there would be, um, uh, maybe that would generate some political will to increase the funding to meet those thresholds. But I worry that if we don't have the high thresholds, then um, states can just set the bar really low um, and continue to underfund education. Um, and, and so I guess I would start there if I had to. But if you had the high threshold without the funding, you'd be you get into this death spiral of court of schools being set up to fail and can't possibly succeed in meeting the standards. And then they have teaching to the test, you know, you get, this is this death spiral, right? Right. Right. But, but, but maybe it would lead to some, you know, awareness, political awareness, um, of of how grave, grave the situation is. I don't know. Um, So, so I have two alter, what I, the Joe, what would Joe do if he could turn one dial? I I didn't ask that. I know that you didn't. (laughs) Um, And, and, and I'm going to prove why you didn't, because you know that the first dial I would reach for is the volume knob on your microphone. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that's the first dial I would turn. This is, that's a classical argument moment right there. That's going to be on the highlight reel. The the other uh, dial I would turn um, is, um, because in some sense, I do think this is what everyone is talking about, whether they mean to or not, um, is sharply progressive income taxation. I mean, this is this is ultimately about what wealthy people do with their money um, and it and the other claims that are made on that money. And I think that if with if we if there were sharply progressive income taxation at the state level and at the national level, I just think a lot of these conversations would change dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, because we'd be talking about what to do with resources we we already knew we would be collecting, as mm-hmm. opposed to fighting with one another about how to make sure that that there wasn't a greater claim, therefore a greater need to collect a tax. Right? Mm-hmm. It seems to me. Yeah. Like all of these are weird. Of our, you know, as our percentage of our GDP, uh, education is what four point five percent. So could we do more? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it would take some. What is healthcare? Do you know? I don't know. 
Oh, all ha- U.S. healthcare spending on a percentage of GDP. Yeah. Oh, I mm-hmm. think it's something. It's somewhere between fifteen and eighteen percent. I'm sure. It might mm-hmm. be. Maybe it's higher. Actually, if only mm-hmm. Elizabeth were here, she would be able to tell us. Yeah. If only there were. If only there was some way to look stuff like that up. I know. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if you could just type into a keyboard and get an answer? It'd be even better if you could just talk into something. Wow. That's look. I mean, let's let's not be greedy. That's the future. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Josh, thank you so much for this joining great. us. It's been a yeah, really fun conversation. Fun. Thank you so much for, for – I'm so delighted that you stumbled on my article and, and invited me for this. This has been tra- terrific. Can't Experience wait to, for a VAP. <laughs> Can't wait till next time and, and, and good luck in your, in your job hunt. And wherever you, wherever you wind up, we'll be calling again. Yeah, we've got to have you back on. Great. Thanks.